Hello, everyone. You're listening to Teaching Matters, an audio series exploring the unique needs of today's students. Teaching Matters is produced and recorded in the studios of WUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. My guest today is Dr. Linda Rice, a professor of English at Ohio University, and we will be discussing various forces that are really changing the nature of what it means to be a student and teacher going into the future. Dr. Rice received her bachelor's degree from Grove City College in Pennsylvania, her master's of educational administration from Westminster College, and her PhD in curriculum and instruction from Kent State University. She currently serves as the director of the Master of Arts in English online program in the Ohio University English Department. Linda, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm glad to be here. We're, we're, we're really glad to have you here. And, and in fact, um, to, to sort of hone in on that, you have a, a very diverse background and re- with respect to your teaching experiences and places that you've taught uh, that I think gives you, a, in many respects, a much broader perspective on on being a teacher and understanding the needs of students. Can you talk a little bit about what your background is, um, you know, some of those features that adds to your perspective? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I think uh, just in a summary form, I taught high school English for 10 years before I came to Ohio University, where I've been for 14 years teaching future teachers as my, my primary uh, emphasis. I taught for three years north of Pittsburgh, seven years uh, southeast of Cleveland, and during that time, teaching grades 7 through 12, but mostly 11 and 12, uh, grade English with a focus on American literature and British literature, um, it was really the that environment that I think honed um, – as much as one can hone one's teaching skills, I think really helped that to happen uh, because in, in that K-12 context, you're having to reach all students. So it isn't those who have already made it through the gate who um, we anticipate to be uh, successful in college, but it's it truly is all. And many times when I would uh, – so let's say if I were teaching an honors or an AP class in a high school, I would look at that experience as these students are going to achieve with or without me. So mm-hmm. my best case scenario there is to be the very best teacher for them and help them to have an experience and a readiness that would surpass that of, well, any other teacher. I mean, it's always our aim to be the very best teacher and, and give students the best yeah. uh, experiences that we can. But on the other end of the spectrum, you know, I would have students who had never in, uh, thought about going to college um, in the that basically um, – corridor between Cleveland and Pittsburgh, you know, you have a a, a depressed area Mm -hmm. um, from manufacturing and and the jobs that were there in the 60s and 70s and 80s um, are just there. Many of them are not there anymore. And so students, um, I guess two things. One is I would want to help to ignite that fire within the student, help the student to see the possibility if he or she hadn't um, considered going to college or furthering their education outside of uh, or beyond high school. So I wanted to, to stoke that. But also, if that student were going right into the military, right into the workforce, I would want to help that student to grab on to the sense that reading matters, reading, um, writing, communicating. And again, that's just my discipline-specific mm-hmm. area. Others would, would, I'm sure, draw these from STEM fields. Um, but, but that these, these key 
reading, writing, communication skills open doors, you know, and, and um, provide one with opportunities to be very engaged and active uh, in society. And so, so for that group that might not be going on to college, one way that I would really think about them is if, if I could be that one person who could give them that joy of reading that would help that to, to last a lifetime, um, that that was a really important aim. So then going on from there, um, obviously there are wonderful benefits of teaching at the high school level, and I would say some added benefits of teaching at the college <laughs> college level. Um, certainly the, the flexibility and, and generally a greater preparedness among students. But I do think that, that teaching the uh, – working from the standpoint of – having to motivate students who don't want to be there, haven't had that um, maybe positive experience before, um, is really a great transferable skill teaching at any level. And um, let me think if there's anything I want to say else I want to say about that. Well, then in coming to the university, my primary job is to teach the senior capstone methods courses for future middle and high school English teachers. But I also um, have taught a lot of freshman comp and a lot of junior comp. And again, drawing on these courses where you have students of all majors and so that aspect of really um, finding it important how we're going to engage them and be relevant across the uh, the disciplines is, uh, is a part of that. And I think I do have uh, other parts of uh, um, um, my experiences in teaching, some of the international consulting I've done in Africa and the Middle East, uh, working with diverse faculty and student bodies uh, has also helped helped me to have a, a broad perspective on teaching and my work with the Bruning Teaching Academy where I'm here working with faculty of all different disciplines. Um, I think that has really helped. But but I think my key experience is the 10 years in <laughs> high school and then right. the, the years that, that I've had here. You know, before we move away from that, there's a couple things that that I observed as you were as you were talking about that. Number one is it's so great to hear someone talk with such passion about a holistic understanding of the student that that as a teacher, it's not just the the assignments that you're grading for that student in your class at that moment in time, but it's really thinking about why why are they learning this and how is that going to benefit them as citizens and 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 uh, people you know functioning in society in the future it's really great to hear someone articulate that in such a such a clear way the second thing that i heard you say uh during during the answer to that question that i think is really interesting and important is that when you think about a student, um, it's not just they walk in your door and then they're a tabula rasa slate where you get to teach them, but they bring with them their background, their family, um, the the region in which they grew up, uh, and, and all the facets of that region, and any number of other what we might think of as being more social and emotional um, pieces of them, that walks into the classroom with them, and that's something that teachers have to take into consideration. Uh, and it sounds like some, that's something that you've witnessed as you you've taught students at different levels. That is, that is so true, Scott. Just um, the whole student and what students have going on in their personal lives, their family lives. And that doesn't stop happening at the high school level. I mean, I, you know, I can think of students that I that are in my class right now and their parents, uh, you know, they have a parent who is ill, uh, parents who are going through divorce. Uh, the student might have, it seems like we're having increasing diagnoses of um, anxiety, of, de- of, of depression. And, you know, these students are... Uh, 
coming to our classrooms with, in some cases, a, a really a lot of, of, of baggage, uh, mm-hmm. things that they're really having to work through. And absolutely, um, when we think of where students are coming from geographically, uh, not just from Ohio or from other states or, or internationally, but but how unique communities are, and that our communities shape our, uh, in some part, they, they they shape our vision of what's possible or what is the norm, and so I think as much as we we want to appreciate that and bring that experience to bear in all of the positive ways, but then also to be ever working to expand uh, that vision of where we are, of of place, of its significance, and then of what is possible, what is outside where we are right now. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. And, and it's really to the core of what we're trying to explore in this podcast series is is the fact that students do have these other facets of their life that impacts them as learners. And, and of course, what we're trying to explore and that you and I will get to as we as we talk a little bit more um, right now is is the extent to which the changing culture in which we live is adding to that complexity of the whole student when they walk into the classroom. And so we'll get to some of those issues in just a little bit. Uh, before we turn away from your background, I want to focus just a little bit more on the fact that you're currently directing an online program. And we know um, from looking at the media and maybe our own personal experiences that online education is clearly something that is uh, growing in relevance for a lot of people. Do you have any impressions, you know, given that you direct a program about online education? Uh, and I guess particularly, you know, what what is it that you think works really well for a majority of students when we try to engage them in online uh, pedagogy? Well, I would say my first impression is that there are many inaccurate impressions <laughs> of what online teaching and learning is and is not and what it can and cannot do. So uh, many times, some of the those who are um, the most vociferous opponents standing in the way of uh, online teaching and learning are people who really have little to no experience with it. So it's it's assumptions, it's things they've heard, um, and it's also, I think. Uh, even what knowledge is there is something that's a decade old. Mm-hmm. And even if you take something as simple, it's not actually that simple, but um, but for, for our purposes, the, the learning management system Blackboard, people have, I, I hear regularly hear, you know, we'll hear some people talk about Blackboard and how much they, for example, they hate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it's, and it's usually framed of it can't do this or it can't do that. But actually, right now, it can do that. Not that it can do everything. And I'm not here to be a proponent of Blackboard per se. But, but to say that, that I hear people say things that are they're just inaccurate in terms of what, the, what our LMS can do or it's based on uh, what it could do four years ago or three years ago or two years ago. And, and you know, obviously, it keeps uh, – it keeps um, – updating and, and expanding, you know, what it includes, although there's still room for improvement. Mm-hmm. So I'll give it a, a gentle nudge there to, to keep going and, and listening to the, to the users. But I think with the online environment, I might boil it down to uh, essentials of good teaching are essentials of good teaching. Mm-hmm. That happens whether we're working in a face-to-face environment or an online environment. I have taught almost all of my 20 four years in face-to-face environments. I do have experience, obviously, um, with the the online environment. But I also wouldn't want uh, people to 
basically forget that uh, all that those face to face years that that's the formation of uh, for me of of that good teaching and then working through the challenges the, these key questions of how can we take what we know is good teaching in a face to face format that that especially in the humanities we prize that we privilege that um, you know that coming together of people and posing questions in the Socratic uh, method where we're back and forth and creating this rich dynamic that and and there there are ways <clears throat> there are ways in which it's not going to be the same unless you had a, a synchronous component to the online instruction. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be the same, but you can still have discussion. You can still have, um, and with um, VoiceThread and, and other tools now, you can actually have the video component and the audio component and students going back and forth and the teacher being in the midst of that and probing. And So, so I think it's, um, there are advantages to face-to-face instruction, but I think we can even go so far reasonably and say there are also advantages to online teaching and learning. For one, there are students who will sit back and be very quiet in a uh, face-to-face classroom, and if we call them out, they will – it will cause distress, sure. and we would like to think that we could, you know, probe long enough, that, you know, and, and create these safe classroom environments where they they finally open up and feel comfortable. But that doesn't always happen. And yet, in the online environment, I have seen students who will really open up, and not that they, you know, it's not that they become a, someone who takes over the discussion board or something. But so, and and then probably the biggest uh, benefit of online teaching and learning. It truly is the access. Mm-hmm. And I believe so strongly that if we – we can't keep um, – I'm going to step on a platform for a moment. But um, we can't keep that concept of the other as something that's purely academic. Uh, if we really believe in reaching out and helping the other, whoever that other may be, sometimes that's going to mean changing the modality of our own teaching. And so uh, as, as Ohio University in particular, our access mission is really important. Our five regional campuses certainly help us with that access mission, but also online teaching and learning help us uh, with that access mission. And so I think that this piece of providing opportunity Two and four people who would not have that opportunity is is really really important. And while online and face to face aren't entirely the same, there are fundamentals of good teaching that will work in either environment. So well stated, and I and I agree that uh, you know many of the critics of online pedagogy would say, well, you can never approximate the sort of the the immediacy and the intimacy of a classroom environment in a in a mediated environment like that they they say it can happen but yet if we look at our students they're building and maintaining entire social networks through their mobile devices and and so they're living in that world already um, maybe it's not the world that you and I grew up in but it's the world that the students of today are growing up in and it's certainly influencing their perceptions of what is able to be accomplished communicatively and and then therefore from a teacher standpoint uh, in a mediated environment. Let's, to, to kind of stick with this uh, top, this general topic, um, you know, you and I have, have grown up and seen the rise of the digital generation. Um, I still remember what it was like before email existed, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so I, I'm, I'm a digital transplant, as many of the college professors, though not all of them are now. And, and as I think about the changes that's take, 
taken place. I mean, clearly our students are entering higher education now and even high school um, with, with a different understanding of how technology is influencing their lives and how technology is a learning tool. It's not, it's not just a flashy thing to put in a classroom like a smart board or something like that, but it's really fundamentally changed their understanding of how to access information, how to understand how to use information, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's just a different world now. Can you talk and, and reflect a little bit on what some of those forces are or some of those things that are happening because of the digital technology revolution that you think are changing the nature of what it means to be a student or a learner? This is such a, a great and really, really important question. Um, I think fundamental, when, when I think of, of this, and it's a question of um, digital natives and millennials, post-millennials, and, and their learning as compared to, say, our learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think really key to this, when, when I think about it, is what do we have to know now? Um, the Be able to do changes, that's also changed some, well, of course, with technology and so forth. I mean, the world keeps more moving forward. But but it's this, what do we have to really know? Mm-hmm. What what parts uh, of education, of, of life, do we have to have basically committed to memory as compared to just have the skill of, um, which isn't even, I think, much of a skill, but being able to log on and find information. Mm-hmm. Of course, in the process of sifting information, that's one of the skills that when everything is at our fingertips, we have to... Um, we have to be good sifters. We have to mm-hmm. be good um, analyzers to determine what are accurate sources, what are reliable sources. So that is key, helping students to to figure that out. But um, I'm I'm going to use an example um, that happened in my English uh, 4510. It's a teaching language and composition class recently. I had asked my students how many of them had a poem committed to memory. And very few, I think actually two, raised their hands. And then I said, okay, and would be, you know, now you, you know it and, and you'd be willing to, to state it before the class. And, um, and then it came down to just one student. And the poem she recited, very sweet poem, it was a, a brief Shel Silverstein poem. And, um, and then I said, uh, and I, of course, recited a couple of poems just because I was trying to make a point that when we as and, you know, again, particular audience here being high school English teachers, but when we can hold these poems as part of us or other literary texts, passages of Shakespeare were, used to be very common to memorize passages from Shakespeare. Um, and then we can perform them when we it's just like an actor when an actor owns the the text is committed to then you have the performance to go with it it's more than just the auditory reading and so so I gave a a few demonstrations and and um and then and then I said you know ask your parents and and probably for them more their their grandparents great grandparents Mm -hmm. you know how how many of them have poems committed to memory and uh and I said so I I use the example of my mom my mom is 84 years old and she probably has a dozen poems and long poems committed to memory that she learned when she was probably in elementary and, and middle and maybe high school and just these long beautiful poems and uh and and so at the end of that, and uh, my students asked, uh, "Why do you think it is that 
we don't do this now, you know, that, the, that we don't have these poems memorized. And, and my immediate answer is, was because we don't know these ourselves. So we don't ask students to do things that, you know, we don't know or we don't do. But that question planted in me and, and I started thinking about it over a couple of days and I thought, you know, there was something deeper in, in the question and, and pedagogically w- what has happened. And I think part of it is how we have – we've shifted and there was, there was a good shift in being more in tune with um, student self-esteem. You know, we're not the – to be stereotypical, but the old Catholic school model of mm-hmm. the you know you're going to get your hand slapped by the yeah. by the nun. Um, but so th- so we we have paid more attention to students' self esteem, and we have also um, we've looked at multiple intelligences and, and finding ways to honor what students can do individually that they may not not all do in the standard two scores of the ACT or SAT. You know the just. Mean there are more scores than that, but the verbal, linguistic, mm-hmm. and the logical, mathematical-based intelligences, and and so there were there were good things about that. But I think the the other piece that that kind of came along with, and this was a really popular trend in the eighties and nineties, this self-esteem shift, is don't put anyone on the spot, and. For sure, asking a student to memorize some lines and stand up and read them in front of the class, that would be putting someone on the spot. And so I guess I would use this to say, I think we've, we've got, I think we went too far. I think we've, we've gone too far in that regard of the, the self-esteem and the everyone gets, gets a trophy and, you know, showing up is good enough. And it, but that we need to balance back out that, um, being prepared and what you do when you're there and some of these um, deeper – this deeper ownership and command of, of the content uh, because once – for example – and I'm not saying – I don't want to prize memory over all – you know, over other things. But I'm just trying to use this as one illustration that if something is committed to memory, if we really know it, then we can use it more adeptly. We can adapt it. We can uh, apply it in, in and across different contexts. And so back to the original question, how – Millennials or digital natives are are different, um, or how that's affected our pedagogical strategies. It really comes down to um, what do they need to know, and and I don't have the answer to that. Um, although in my my own classes, there are practices that I will have my students. Um, uh, you know things I have them do and repeat, and that, so that they become second nature. Because just because we can Google something and find a convenient answer, it doesn't make it part of us. So I think this this process of repetition and realizing that that is so key to making it part of us. Um, that's really that's something that we just have to keep holding on to, and, and maybe. M- Explain overtly and make uh, more persuasively a point to millennials and post-millennials so that um, just because something can be looked up quickly doesn't mean that it's, uh, that it's all we need to know is that, that searching skill. <laughs> yeah, such a great point. I mean, you, you, could, you could, though I think not effectively advance the argument, you don't really need to know anything as long as you have a, a powered-up device, right? Mm-hmm. You can find it mm-hmm. very easily through in, in, in a matter of seconds, not mm-hmm. minutes even. But the real question might be, why should you know something? And when you answer that question and really think about it, you know, as, as I tell my daughter, uh, who's a 14-year-old, you need to buy into something and, and kind of sell out to it, you know, to really understanding that. It doesn't matter what that is. 
you know, it could be something that's artistic. It could be something that's athletic. It could be something that's scientific in the humanities. It doesn't matter what that is that you really buy into. But if you don't buy into something, then then you don't have a home base of what, you know, it's, it's a part of your identity. You know, when I decide I want to memorize a poem and commit myself to that, it doesn't matter what that poem is, but the fact that I chose that poem and put that amount of effort into it, that has become an identity of who I am as a learner um, and as an adult, as a citizen. I think that's the that's the issue that's important. It's more of an affective issue uh, in many respects. Absolutely. Well stated. Yeah. You are listening to Teaching Matters on WOUB. I'm Scott Titsworth, and my guest is Dr. Linda Rice. Before the break, we were talking about the role of technology and how that's impacting the way that students are learning. And we had a a great discussion about how uh, it's really changing what it means to need to learn something. Let's switch gears a little bit and think about um, this question. Have you, in, in, in your time, you know, either through your time in teaching in high school or now in college, have you have you started to witness some of the problems associated with the assumption, I don't need to learn this because I can find it online? Have you started to witness that causing problems for students? Hmm. Um, or maybe teachers as well. I mean, you know, maybe it makes it harder to teach. So... I'm sure I have, (laughs) and I'm trying to think of, you know, maybe an example of that. I guess I I would just go to um, the ongoing process of persuasion, and uh, so I will use teaching as an example. So one of the things that the in the capstone methods, English education methods course, uh, students work on are really, really detailed lesson plans, and inevitably. Uh, students will, as they're working on these plans, and, and they're in the field at the in a uh, grade seven through twelve English placement at the same time. Inevitably, a student or more than one student will will come in and, and they'll say, "Our teacher says, right? Our teacher says you would never really write a lesson plan like this." At which point, I remind them, I did teach high school for ten years, mm-hmm. and I was a national board certified teacher. So um, that's a just a little plug there for the national. Um, the board certification. I mean, less than five um, percent of teachers nationwide hold that credential, and it's a very high standard for for what it is to be a professional um, K twelve teacher. And so, um, what I remind them of is that we will do these plans in this level of detail um, until, or in the hopes that these all of these things that need to be in a teacher's mind to uh, plan for effective instruction become second nature. Things don't start second nature. You, you mentioned it was a great parallel earlier, but just because you look something up, I mean, I, I had this vision in my mind when, when you were talking of, okay, here's the, the um, newly graduated um, medical student, right? And now they're, they had that rotation in, in surgery. And now here's the book and, and here's the scalpel and right. Ah, you know, so, um, and just, so, but it's the practice, it's the routine, so that things really become second nature. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so I guess that, um, it isn't enough to just be able to Google the thing and have that, but, but it actually is this, this practice and this recurrence. And, um, I, I guess I, I, I don't spend a lot of time um, looking for or, or working, you know, with students who are saying, "Why do Why do I need to know this?" But, uh, but I'm 
I th- think very clear and explicit, as I think we need to be with students, about why we're asking them to do what we're asking them to mm-hmm. do. And I, and I say that the same to them is, you know, when you're every once in a while, and I, I'll spare the, the lengthy example, although it's a good one. It relates to Dead Poets Society, that great film with uh-huh. Robin Williams, very inspirational teacher. Um, but there, every once in a while, there's, there is a situation where we ask students to do something and we don't tell them the why, even if they ask. But it's because we're waiting for an aha moment. Mm-hmm. And we know the reason. We're not just blindly going into the thing, but we hold that back for that surprise so that has this maximum uh, impact on on the students. But otherwise, when students say, you know, why do I need to know this? We ought, we ought to have good reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think that's about learning objectives, clear learning objectives, you know, the, the, those, all those strong verbs we're supposed to, to use and, and really be able to talk about the value behind what we're doing. And I think when, when students see work we are serious in our approach and fun, but serious in our approach to teaching and learning um, that I think that some of the questions, they just fade away because students see that we're really invested and we're doing things that are purposeful. Mm-hmm. As, you th- as you think about the, the millennial and post-millennial students that will be in our classrooms, d- do you have any worry that they will come in and perhaps be literate as readers but not good readers in the sense that – you know, they they can pick up a book and read the language with no problem, but they don't really they don't really internalize what it is that they're learning from that text or prose. So that is where discussion, guided questions, Socratic method, uh, all of the things that that lead us in the process of critical thinking and analysis. Those are so very, very important. And I think it takes a, a skilled teacher to – and all the way along. I mean this can't be something that starts in college and, and it can't be something that starts in middle school. But just when it's developmentally appropriate all the way along to help students in this deepening process of analysis, uh, I, I think we can do that. I mean I think it's the – that is – part of the job and really the art of fine teaching all the way through our education. Uh, and so uh, I, I, don't, I'm, I don't get too concerned about um, students just reading and, and not reading analytically unless they don't have a strong teacher, many strong teachers all along. And that's why every teacher in the whole pipeline of education needs to be so well prepared and so committed. Um, I, I say to my pre-service teachers regularly, we are a strong as our weakest link. So every single one of you needs to be so strong. And um, and when you're out there, you're a reflection of me. And when I'm teaching, I'm a, you know, a reflection of you. And, and so we just, it is so important that I mean, just can't emphasize or underscore that point enough that um, we actually don't have worries about uh, education and the future of our country as long as we have really strong teachers at every level. What a great positive message too, because I think sometimes the general public, but even us as teaching professionals, thinks about teaching as being somewhat of an isolated activity. You know, the door when when our door closes to our classroom, it's just us and our students. But the reality is, it's not isolated. That we are very fundamentally interconnected with our colleagues, uh, both in our in our current grade levels, uh, but but also the, all the other grade levels. You know, I am connected to the people that are teaching K twelve, and vice versa. I think that's a really positive message that we don't hear all that often. So thank you for articulating it. Um, 
you know, you started to talk about this issue of the Socratic method and, and, and really getting at the importance of the interaction between the teacher and the student. And I think that that raises a question for me that, you know, obviously learning is not just a cognitive exercise where we try to accumulate and understand and apply information, but we also know that there's an emotional aspect of learning. Um, can you talk about how you see the role of, you know, sort of the emotionality of the learning experience as being important, whether you want to call that affect of learning, which is maybe what you and I, because of our training, would call it, or if you just say, look, there's emotions involved in learning, that kind of means the same thing. What are your thoughts on how emotions play a role in learning and, and how maybe that's changed over time, if at all? Maybe it's the same, but you know, what are your reactions to the idea of emotions being important in the learning process? I do think uh, emotions are important in in the learning process. Um, It's not necessarily my first approach when I'm thinking about a course or a course design. I'm thinking about perhaps the, the fundamentals, you know, what, what are the essentials in a course, a course design or a lesson that I want students to take away. But that being said, once we know that cognitive domain, these particular skill sets that, that we want students, knowledge and skills that we want students to know, that how, that delivery can very much be related to and enhanced by that affective or emotional domain. So, uh, of course, a, a great technique here is to think of essential questions. So we have the the content and skills, but but that why. So the essential questions um, go after a really, it can be a kind of the mile high uh, structure for a unit. So, um, why does justice matter in a society it would be an example. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, would be a, a kind of question uh, mode of, of, of the essential question. Um, and then in a more immediate lesson-to-lesson basis, something as simple as an anticipatory set. So if you have a, a one-hour and 20-minute class meeting, um, th- that beginning question uh, that where you, you pose a question and you have each student, and this is just one strategy, but you know, write a, a one-minute response and then maybe have them come to the board, maybe have them sit in a circle, maybe have them think, pair, share, you know, write their own response, turn to a partner, and then share out to the whole class. But I think that uh, when we and, – and there, the question being not only on the content but that personal aspect. When have you experienced injustice? When have you experienced love? Uh, what is it like to have your heart broken? You know, and, and we can use these as different segues into literature, into themes. I'm having a lot of humanities emphasis, obviously, because that's my more my background. And, and I'm not, uh, you know, I don't know so much how all of, all of that works in the in the STEM fields. But mm-hmm. I do think this emotional, this emotional or, or affective domain, it, it really is important that it's the that piece where um, there's the why does it matter, why do I have to do this that points to vocation, and there's the why do I have to know this or do this that I think starts to push away have to and turns into want to. I want to pursue this because it actually I can see a relevance of these big essential questions to my life and the world in which I live. It seems like to be able to have that conversation with students in a class, it really – 
rests upon a, a relationship that the teacher develops with the students. And, and, and I think, you know, people like you and I that's been in the classroom for a while, we kind of have that as an intuitive sense that I have to develop rapport, uh, not only with my entire class as a whole, but I, I also have to find ways to develop rapport with individual students to really make that difference. And so that makes sense, I think, to any of us that's been in the classroom uh, for, for a period of time. What I, what I am wondering about is if those same uh, approaches to building rapport with the class or with students is going to be the same with the current and future generation of students as it was with the students that we started teaching with. And part, I think it's two sides of a coin. Part of me says, at the end of the day, we're still humans. And so that idea of building rapport likely won't change all that much. Although having said that, you see all of these studies that says that the millennials and the post-millennials uh, have different characteristics to them. And if that's true, then they are still human beings, but they come into that, they come into that classroom with a different set of beliefs and values that may be a slightly different. So I you know, as an educator, I don't know what to think about that. I mean, I know that the rapport is important, but I also can't figure out whether the same the same tools that I've used before are going to be as effective. Have you thought about this at all? Hmm. I have. I have thought of it some. Uh, wow, we cannot teach without recognizing that the moment. So I have a cell phones must be off and out of sight <laughs> during my class. Uh-huh. Um, although I've heard, you know, faculty now that will have the, especially in an hour and 20 minute class, they'll have a, uh, every 15 minutes, a, you know, one minute phone break, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, to kind of relieve that, that device anxiety. Um, but we, you know, we can't help but notice as soon as class ends, especially if you do have a, a firmer policy as I do, where those are to be off and out of sight. Um, students immediately are, are connected. They grab the device, make a call, look at a text, search something. Um, and, and that, so, and a key characteristic of millennials and post-millennials is that they are relational. And that's, I find that fascinating only in that I think so, well, I think so many of us who are uh, prior to that generation, we think, oh, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and texting, that's just, you know, that's kind of uh, not the real thing. But to millennials and post-millennials, it's absolutely the real thing. This is where their relationships happen. And even gaming, um, where you, you have people gaming together in parts all over the world. And mm-hmm. so it's 1 a.m. here and it's, you know, 1 p.m. there, you know, if someone in Asia and someone uh, in, in China and someone in, in the U.S. and they're playing the same game and they get to know one another. Uh, so they, they're highly relational. Um, but back to the, you know, does it, is it fundamentally change? I think the nature of the connection connection, um, the format has changed, but what is key and essential and has not changed is that we're relational by design and uh, people want to know, we, we all want to know that someone cares for us. Mm-hmm. And I think when, you know, we don't have to be the most entertaining teacher, we don't have to be, you know, funny, but I think when students know that that we're sincere, we're prepared, we're, we're coming with something that, that um, we believe matters and we're trying to make connections, students see who we are as teachers. They yeah. see what we bring. And um, and, that, and they have this sense that we're fair. You can be very firm, but if you're fair, stu- and I f- also find when we set high expectations, I think I think most people they, 
they want people to expect much of them. And we, when we set high expectations, provided we provide the support to help students meet those expectations, they will achieve more. Um, and, and that's – that's all part of the relationship, that sense that someone cares enough about me to set high expectations and then help me meet and even exceed those expectations. So I think that element of caring, whether it's on a device or face-to-face, that is, that is so essential to, to learning. Linda, we've talked a lot about uh, these issues, maybe from the perspective of a teacher. Let me switch gears with one last question. If you were giving advice to students that were entering you know, Ohio University next year, so incoming students, Given the perspective that they're coming from, that they are millennial slash post-millennial students and, and the world that they grew up in is a, is a very digitally oriented world, et cetera, all the issues that we've been talking about, what's the advice that you would give them to succeed? See your professors at office hours. <laughs> so um, – that, that really would be a, a piece that I would tell them. So relationships matter. Um, whether you're in a, a large lecture class uh, or you're in a, a smaller, uh, say, 20-person um, freshman composition course, uh, have a conversation with your professor. Um, it's good for the professor to, to know who you are. Um, it helps develop, I think, um, when, we, when we do have that sense of knowing one another, um, besides just a paper or, or only the class exchange, just a little bit um, closer communication. I think it enhances the, the overall learning experience. Um, keep doing what you're doing. I think with your devices, you know, staying in touch with your millennial and post-millennial friends. But also, I, w- I would... And this is really just in light of this conversation uh, we've just been having, Scott. But I think I would I would also say uh, I would I would want to challenge students to to um, take two hours. You know, probably you can't take a, a whole Saturday or something, but take two <laughs> hours and and you know have take four of your friends have every have all all leave their devices behind and and go out and do something without your devices. Wouldn't that be mm-hmm. interesting? You know, yeah. if we had this kind of device free day or afternoon or a couple of hours and and so um, to keep engaging, you know, and see how the relational component of engaging with devices and and then device free, you know, how that how that shapes uh, experiences that we have. Um, I think those are maybe the top two things that that come to mind, and and again, it's coming back back to the relational, um, and then to to probably also um, to know that it is okay to ask why. So if you're in a classroom and and you want to ask that, why do we have to know this? Okay. It's okay to ask that question um, because, frankly, as faculty, we, we ought to have a good answer to that question. <laughs> right. So I think that's okay. And then, uh, and then I think to bring a good dose of faith, you know, that, that in the whole process of learning and growing in, in college, uh, that there's the academics and then there's – and this is going back to – where we started with the some of the online learning, there really are such benefits, amazing benefits of having the residential college experience. And so for any and all who are privileged enough to have that opportunity to really live that to the full, that there is the academic component, there's the extracurricular component, there's the social component, and all of these merge to just really um, be an amazing experience. And, and so I guess number one, a piece of advice outside of see your professors, just come with an open mind and open 
open heart and really be ready to have a great time, work hard, um, play hard. And so definitely put those two hours out of class for every one hour in class. (laughs) Um, And then just, you know, really enjoy your Bobcat experience. My guest today has been Dr. Linda Rice, who is a professor of English. And uh, Linda, I just want to say that you've clearly been one of the leaders on campus about promoting effective teaching. I want to thank you for that and, and thank you for being a part of the program today. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It's great to be here. Thank you for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash perspectives. Our audio engineer is Adam Rich, and I'm Scott Titsworth, your host. Special thanks to Timothy Vickers of Ohio University's Center for Teaching and Learning for his assistance in producing this program. On behalf of WOUB Public Media, thank you for listening, and have a great day.